Hey, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're new to Remnant, welcome. Uh, we, uh, every week it happens. We rehearse, we practice, nothing happens. Everything seems to go well. I come here during the week to an empty room. Everything works fine. You guys are the problem. That's what I figured out. All right. Well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, You know, I was thinking this week, one of the things that blew me away about the Bible, uh, for years I read the Bible. I grew up in church. I knew all the stories. I did all the felt boards. I filled in all the blanks. Um, And then when I became 17, I knew everything. And I didn't need God anymore because I was God. I know I'm the only one that's ever done this. And I walked away from church for about 17 years. Um, And at one point, I realized that while I knew the stories, I didn't understand what God was doing. And somebody challenged me to read the book with my heart instead of my head, which was hard for me because every other book I'd ever read, I've read with my head. And what convinced me that God wrote this book was not the stories, it wasn't the moral truths, it wasn't the incredible stories of what Jesus did, it was the themes that connect the dots throughout the scriptures. Written by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years, most of whom never met each other, and yet when you look at the scriptures, the cohesive theme is incredible. And every story was validated by the people who lived during that time. So something happened, everybody said, yep, that's what happened. 1,500 years later, something else happens, and they're like, yep, that's what happened. And you realize that those two things are so connected, only God could have connected them. And we're going to look at one of those today. I've said over and over and over that every story in the Bible, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, every bit of it points to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you're studying. And so one time somebody challenged me on that and I did a whole series on the Old Testament and how everybody foreshadowed Jesus. And we've been looking at these moments in our lives when we decide that we're all in. And I talked about when I came back to God, I had to get on my knees and go, God, I don't know what you have for me. I don't know what you have planned. I don't know where you're going to want me to go or what you're going to want me to do, but I'm not going to be one of those hypocritical Christians. If I say I follow you, I'm following you. I don't care what we go through or where we go. I'm all in. And I believe that realization is the critical part of maturity as a believer. When you can, from your heart, get on your knees and say, God, anything, anywhere, anytime, any cost. I don't care. I'm following you. And we're going to look at how God actually empowered us to not only get to that point, but to do it. And we're going to, we've been looking at this whole series on the Holy Spirit. And tonight or today, we're going to focus on two different moments that happened in time, but are so similar and so connected. It just makes you stand back and go, whoa, That's God. Let me take you to a sermon that Peter gave. And he's talking to all the people of Israel on the day of Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus who you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They had their moment of repentance. Yes, that's true. We have done these things. Now what do we do? Are we doomed? And I talked a couple weeks ago about how many of us have never had our repentant moment. We skipped it. We made excuses for what we did. These people said, no, yes, we did that. And now what do we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and the people at Remnant, all who are far off, that's us, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at two flashpoints that happened in the Bible, two moments where God intersected with people and they were never again the same. These two moments, 1,500 years apart. And in the process, we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit and about ourselves. The two weeks that we're going to look at, the two things that separate are, I want us to look at two of the annual trips to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feasts that we call the Passover and Pentecost. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the feasts. Years ago, I did a whole series on how every feast is prophetic and points to something in the life of Jesus. And I'm gonna refresh your memory on that a little bit because that was about eight years ago or so. And I may, I've been debating about re-preaching this series at some point, but most of us who are non-Jewish, sort of skipped over the feasts in the Old Testament. And I can just tell you that's a massive mistake and we're going to spend a little bit of time today looking at it. Now there are seven feasts. The word feast in Hebrew means appointed times. God said there are seven times a year when I want you to stop what you're doing and that day is everything about me. And I'm gonna tell you what to do on that day and you're gonna do it on that day. These days, if you want to think of them, are super Sabbaths. You have your Sabbath every week, but these are days when all of Israel, everybody stops what they're doing and celebrates with the Lord. Each of these appointed times were identified by God in Scripture. What he said is, these are my days. I'm going to tell you when they are. I'm going to tell you why we're having them. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. And then you're going to see they point to the Messiah to come. So he says, okay, there are seven feasts, seven appointed times. The three most important feasts are called pilgrimage feasts. They require that every person, every male in Jerusalem, every male in Judah goes to the temple on that day. They travel to Jerusalem from wherever they are. Many of the stories of Jesus, you hear about him, he's headed to the temple for the feast. Okay, there are three that where they required the presence of every Jewish male in Jerusalem. And those are Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost, and the Tabernacles. Three times a year, these people had to go to Jerusalem, twice in the spring, once in the fall. I want to focus first on the Feast of Passover. It's one that most of us have heard about. The night that the blood of the lamb was shed for the people of Israel, it was placed over the doorposts. 
It allowed God to enter, but the angel of death to pass over the house. It was the 10th plague that God had sent to Egypt. And it finally convinced Pharaoh to let God's people go. Every year, Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem to remember the Passover, to remember the day when the lamb was sacrificed, when the blood was put over the door, when the blood covered you from the angel of death. Every day, Jewish people, once a year, would remember how God saved their ancestors and how on one day, In a future to come, the Messiah would be the final lamb who saves everyone. John the Baptist would later say, look, there's the lamb of God. The feast of Passover, it occurs in March or April of the year, depending on the moons. The very next day, so we have Passover, the very next day starts what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, it lasts seven days. It reminds us of the urgency of the flight out of Egypt, how they had to just pack up and go. The bread is unleavened. There was no time to let it rise. Leaven became a reminder to the Jewish people of their slavery in Egypt, their bondage, and their desperate need to flee. The final feast of the Passover week was called the Feast of First Fruits. It occurs on the first day of the week after the Sabbath following Passover. Passover, week-long unleavened bread, somewhere in there is a Sabbath, depending on when the Passover was that year. The next day after the Sabbath is First Fruits, okay? They offered the first fruit of the barley harvest. The spring harvest was barley. They would offer the first fruit. They'd take two sheaves of barley and they would wave them before the Lord. It's called a wave offering. The purpose was to consecrate the rest of the harvest to the Lord. In other words, you've given us, the, I'm giving you the first fruit, Lord, the rest of it you give to us. It was a reminder that God owned the land, that God provided everything, that God was the God of the harvest. He set apart the best, the very first. That belongs to God. But these feasts explode in meaning when you look at them from the context of the risen Messiah, Jesus. Because every one of these feasts pointed to the Messiah that would come. Passover. Jesus was sacrificed as the Lamb of God on Passover. He was presented a week before to the priest for examination, just like the Passover lamb. Three times, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. He is a spotless, perfect lamb. He is sacrificial. When everybody else was sacrificing their lambs that Passover weekend, people were crucifying Jesus. His blood was poured out as the lamb of God. And they remembered how a lamb before had been covering the doorpost. In the same way, Jesus' blood would cover us. When the angel of death comes, they will pass over us because we're covered in the blood of Jesus through our faith. This feast pointed to a day when the Messiah would come and there'd be no more need for sacrifices. But we know that the Lamb of God has come. Our trust in the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed to save us. 
allows the angel of death to pass over. Passover is about justification. It's about you and me, even though we're sinners, being made right with God. Climbing into Jesus as our rescue ark, in a sense. Passover is immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A reminder of the slavery they left behind. The leaven, the sins, the oppression, they left it all behind. They had to flee. They had no time. They had to hold on and go because of unleavened bread. They had to put their faith in Jesus. They had to go. They had to trust God to save them in the midst of the plagues. The day of unleavened blood reminds us that we too left our old life. We too were rescued out of slavery. We too have been freed from the bondage of the sin that is our life. He who has no sin, no leaven, took our sin upon himself so we could be separated from what enslaves us and be free and allow him to guide us to the promised land. We repented. We, we hastily ran back to Jesus. If we hadn't put the blood over the door or if we hadn't put the blood of him over our lives, there would be no promised land. Jesus, the bread of life, took all of our leaven, all of our sin upon himself. And we were being set apart from what enslaves us. Unleavened bread reminds us that Jesus, too, was taken down from the cross in haste. They had to get his body down before the Sabbath started. The bread of life was not fully prepared for burial. It's okay, he didn't stay there long. It was okay. Unleavened bread teaches us about our burial with Jesus. That we should live a life separated from the attitudes and ways of the world. That we should put off the old man. We just sang about it. And, and put off our sin and be characterized by the works of the Holy Spirit. And then the day after the Sabbath, that day immediately after the Sabbath is the Feast of First Fruits. Sunday morning, their Sabbath is on Saturday. Sunday morning, on the first day, the Feast of First Fruits, they remembered the fruit of the growing season. They remembered that God was going to bring a harvest. They remembered that these first fruits were simply a symbol, a, a representation of a much greater harvest to come. And they set it apart for God. We remember that on that day, Jesus rose from the dead. He, the first fruit of the new spiritual promise of God. The fruit of redemption. Because he overcame death, we can overcome death too. His resurrection points to the resurrection of many more, the harvest to come. We embrace the new, resurrected with Christ in our conversion. The feast of first fruits teaches us about the resurrection of Jesus. It also teaches us about the presence of the Spirit in our lives and about our future bodily resurrection. We've been saved from our old life to live resurrected in the Messiah Jesus today. But putting off the old man is not enough. We have to put on 
the new man. There's so much more. After the Passover trip, people returned home for about 40 days. They would leave Jerusalem after the feast of unleavened bread, after the days were over. Seven days, they would leave and go back home. And they'd stay home for 40 days. And then, by day 50, they had to be back in Jerusalem again for the next pilgrimage feast. Barley season was over. They went home to bring back their wheat. Time to go back to the temple. Time to go back to Jerusalem. The Feast of Weeks was here, 50 days after Passover. Pentecost, we call it. Why do we call it Pentecost? Because it means 50. That's what it means, 50. Ooh, they're Pentecostal. They're 50. Wow, okay. On the day of these feasts, throughout Jewish history, God does incredible things. These days are special days. When Passover was all about God's peace, Pentecost is all about God's power. It occurs during the wheat harvest, usually in May or June, whatever falls 50 days after when Passover was. Early on in Jewish history, Passover, uh, Pentecost was a Thanksgiving celebration. They would take two loaves of bread, wheat bread, and they would wave it as an offering to God. Both loaves were cooked with leaven. Now that they've been resurrected, they don't have to flee. They can take their time. They can cook bread. They can offer it to God. It was made with fine flour and no impurities. The wave offering of these two loaves of bread acknowledged man's dependence on God for the harvest and for their daily bread. It was a feast of thanksgiving. The Feast of Pentecost occurs on the Jewish calendar on the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Sivan. You don't need to remember that. It's during the third new moon after Passover. You don't need to remember that either. It corresponds to the Gentile months of May or June, and it lasts for one day. It initially celebrated God's power, but then something happened that changed everything. Early on, the Jewish people, when they were in Egypt or when they would, they would move through the desert, it represented God's power. But there was a day, a very special day, 1,500 years before Jesus, when something happened on this unique Feast of Weeks. Let me read it to you. It's going to take a while. It's in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. And I don't want you to spend a lot of time looking at the slides because I want you to get the image of what's being described here. So just sit back and relax, fall asleep if you want to. Just when you wake up, say amen, it'll be okay. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. On the third month after they came, guess what? The third month after Passover. This is Pentecost, okay? Moses, oh, and... Uh, they departed from Rephidim and they went to the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words of which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and he called for the elders of the people and he laid before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How easy it is to say that. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He brought us out of Egypt. He led us by fire. He split the sea. Now we're at Mount Sinai. Whatever you say, God, we'll do it. Only a very few of these people saw the promised land because they didn't do what they promised God they would do. So easy to make a promise to God. Let's keep going. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you. That's important. And believe you forever. It's going to be important in a minute. I'm going to come back to this. But God says, I'm going to speak to you in a cloud. You're going to hear my voice. Okay? I'm going to literally speak. And because you actually hear my voice, you're going to believe me forever. He goes on. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. That's interesting. Something's going to happen on the third day. Okay. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. They'll all see God. Second promise, you'll see God, you'll hear God. Okay. You shall set bounds for all the people around saying, take heed to yourself that you don't go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he surely will be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. When you hear the trumpet, come to the mountain. So Moses went down to the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So, so all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon the Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. On Pentecost, God reveals his presence to the Egyptians or to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. They see lightning, they see thunder. It's like a thundering, the scriptures tell us. It's the sixth day of Savan, it's Pentecost. God descended on the mountain of fire and smoke filled the mountain. And smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. 
There was a loud trumpet and it became louder and louder and God spoke to Moses in thunder. And that's where the English breaks down. That's where the translations get a little bit fuzzy. You see, the English translation that we read in all of our scriptures say there was thundering and lightnings. Thundering and lightnings. Okay, there's a storm on top of the mountain. That's not what the Hebrew is trying to imply. The Hebrew is saying there's thunderings. There's a loud voice. It could be translated loud voice or proclamation. The voice was like thunder. God had promised them they would hear his voice, not thunder. They heard his voice, and to them it was loud like thunder. In fact, in the Old Testament, that word is translated loud voice or proclamation 383 times, and only thunder 10 times. The image that they wanted us to see is that on top of Mount Sinai, the voice of God came out to the people in thunderous roar. But they knew it was the voice of God. It wasn't just a big thunderstorm. In Hebrew, the word translated lightning in our English means bright fire. Jewish scholars believe that people actually heard and saw the voice of God that God's voice was loud like thunder and there was fire coming from the mountain and there was an earthquake. The mixed multitude that came out of Egypt heard God's voice. And since it's strange to see voices, it's translated thundering and lightning in English and I think it left behind the image of what we're supposed to see. On the feast of Pentecost, on the sixth day of the third month of Sivan, God descended to his people at Mount Sinai and the voice of God sounded like and appeared as a loud rumble and fire and an earthquake. The Jewish people literally saw the voice of God. Now immediately after this, God gives them the Ten Commandments. Let me show you something else that's in here that I think gives us the information we need to show us that they weren't dealing with some thunderstorm. They knew they had heard God's voice. Listen to this. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll hear, but don't let God speak to us or we're going to die. And Moses says, do not fear, too late. They had heard the voice of God. They knew the power of God. Moses apparently had the ability to be in that moment and not die from it. And they're like, look, you go talk to him and you come back and tell us what he said because that was freaky scary. We heard and saw the voice of God. Pentecost became the day when God showed his power and delivered the law to the Jewish people became a day of God's power. It also came with a promise, and this is where God's word explodes. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, north and south. But like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In other words, I made a covenant with them through the law on Pentecost, way back at Mount Sinai. They promised me they would follow me, and none of them did it. Almost none of them. So I'm going to make a new covenant now. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their sins and I will remember their sin no more. After Mount Sinai, Jeremiah, God speaks through Jeremiah one day and he says, one day, Pentecost is going to be different. I'll stop writing on tablets and instead I'm going to write on your heart. And on that day, you're going to know me and you're going to know that you know me and I'm going to forgive your sins and I'm going to remember them no more. And every year for 1,500 years, the people would come to Jerusalem and each year they'd celebrate Pentecost hoping that God would fulfill his promise that one day Pentecost would be different. And 1,500 times they went home disappointed. What God would not do on Mount Sinai, he would do on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And with that background, we begin to understand Acts chapter 2. Remember the instructions Jesus had given. Don't you dare go try to represent me until you receive power from on high. You go to Jerusalem and wait. So let's remember the timeline. Jesus, the Passover lamb, is sacrificed on Passover. His blood covered those who believe. On the day of first fruits, the first day after the Sabbath, their Sabbath was on Saturday. The first day after the Sabbath, Passover, that year was Sunday, of course. The day of first fruits, what happened on that day? Jesus is resurrected. He was the first fruit of this new covenant. The first fruit, evidence that God was going to keep his promise. He had written on Jesus' heart. He had done what he promised to do. This is the first offering, the first spiritual offering that he had. And he had given it. Here he is, resurrected, alive, sinless, eternal, first fruit. He presented themselves alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He appeared to them for 40 days. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. He goes up on the day of first fruits. He appears to them for 40 days. What happens on 50? Well, 50 is the day of Pentecost. Everybody comes back to Jerusalem. So the people were likely in the upper room somewhere between 10 and zero days. They prayed in the upper room, maybe for 10 full days. They'd studied scripture. They knew what the, what the feast meant. They got it. I don't think they were surprised that what happened happened on Pentecost. 
I think they woke up that morning expecting to see the power of God because that's what that day is all about. They knew, I think, I think they knew that it would happen on Pentecost. They had no idea what it was. Those in the upper room prayed for every bit of God and the helper and all the help they could get. Acts 2, 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire household where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They're in the upper room on Pentecost. God's Spirit descends upon them, fire, thundering. Jerusalem is full of Jews from all over the world. They'd come to celebrate and give thanks to God for the feast. They remembered how God had revealed himself and his power on Mount Sinai. 1,500 years before, this was the promise. God said he'd bring a new covenant, today's the day. God had been angry with their ancestors for worshiping false golden calves. Moses is up on the mountain. God told Moses, look, you're gonna go to the promised land because I kept my promise, but I'm not going with you. You can have my promises, you can't have my presence. God issued a punishment that day for their disobedience. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi, the priests, did according to the word of Moses. And on that day, 3,000 men fell. They didn't trust God at Mount Sinai, and God condemned them to death, 3,000 of them, at the hands of the priests. Wow. On that day, 3,000 people died for their disobedience. On Mount Sinai, God had given them the Torah, but the Torah couldn't give them power. The Torah was not the promise of the Father. The truth is, is that the original Feast of Tabernacles was a foreshadowing of the real event to come of the Messiah who would bring a new covenant. The Messiah would rescue everyone from their sins. And it leads us to a flashpoint moment where you put your trust totally in him and his presence and power falls on you. Because the mission's too big. I want you to witness to everybody. I'm gonna use you to change the world. Well, then you better power be up. And they began immediately in that moment. Once they realized the Spirit of God had fallen on them, they did the only thing they could possibly do. They praised God. The moment you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're praising God. It's the way it works. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. There was such a loud noise that accompanied the Holy Spirit's fall at Pentecost. People were drawn to them. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. At the sound, the multitude came. What happened on Mount Sinai? At the sound, the people moved towards the mountain of God. At the sound of Pentecost, the bringing in of the Holy Spirit, the rushing wind, the people moved towards God to see what was happening. And they were bewildered because they heard each person speaking to them in their own language. And instead of rushing to the foot of Mount Sinai, they rushed to the foot of Mount Zion. Their ancestors had stood and watched God manifest himself with loud sounds and flashes of fire, and they stood in awe of God's presence as he did the same thing. No doubt, this was a huge moment for them. They were drawn to the same thing, God manifesting himself to his people. Loud sounds, flashes of tongues of fire. People thought they were drunk, but they were just full of the spirit of God. Once shy Peter, my favorite, now full of the Holy Spirit, boldly begins to preach. At Pentecost on Mount Sinai, 3,000 people died for their disobedience and their, trust, their failure to trust God. But look at what happens at Pentecost in Jerusalem. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Probably a coincidence. 3,000 people killed on Mount Sinai for lack of faith. 3,000 people saved on Mount Zion because of their faith. God's a God of details. It's connecting dots through scripture. He connects dots over centuries. Now remember, this is all occurring during the Feast of Pentecost. When people were waving two loaves of bread, offering them to God to show their dependence upon him and to say thanks. The two loaves are baked with leaven, a common symbol of sin. They'd already had the feast of unleavened bread. This is kind of the feast of leavened bread. One loaf symbolized the Jews who would receive the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. The other symbolized the Gentiles who would receive the Holy Spirit in Caesarea and beyond. It'd start with a man named Cornelius, validating that the promise was both for the Jew and the Gentile. The Holy Spirit had come for everybody, just as Jesus had promised. Acts 2.39, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Three feasts of the Lord represent the encounters that God had with his people. Passover is all about God's peace. Pentecost is all about God's power. Tabernacles, all about God's rest. God wanted us to see in Passover that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He died for our sins. His shed blood covers us when the angel of death passes over. He wanted us to see at Pentecost that Jesus is the resurrected, glorified Messiah who is very much alive and sends to us the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been when those early followers experienced the Holy Spirit on the day when God talks to his people? We read Acts and we think, well, their lives were different after that. They had to be changed. 
Surely they became different people. God is wowing them over and over and over. New discoveries, new powers, new victories. They lived on the edge. They lived in the danger zone. Further on the edge, the harder, the hotter the intensity. They, they were the original Jesus freaks. They seemed unstoppable. We read in Acts and we think, man, I wish God would do stuff like that in my life. I wish my spiritual journey was exploding like that. I wish that every day was full of adventure for God. They're so lucky. No, they weren't. They were not uniquely favored. The life they lived was not supposed to be unusual. We're the ones that made it unusual. It's the norm for them. It's supposed to be the norm for us. Holy Spirit filled people. It's called being spirit-led. It's called having a spirit-led life. Why do we long for it and why does it seem so fleeting to us? Because we missed what happened in those 10 days in the upper room. Put yourself in their sandals. Jesus left. They're grieving, they're scared, they're sad, they're afraid. The Jewish leaders had just crucified Jesus. They likely thought they were wanted men. They were part of a rebellion. They were probably eager to hide away and pray. Jesus said he'd send another helper just like him. I wonder what they expected. A knock at the door? A telegram with instructions. Maybe they'd received new bodies just like Jesus did. He said a helper would be in them. Would he speak to them? Would it be like an internal radio? Were they going to have auditory hallucinations? Would this be another helper? Would it show them visions? Would he come to them in dreams like Joseph? They didn't know what to expect. Maybe it'll be the archangel Michael, another rabbi or a military leader. They didn't know. They had no idea what to expect. But the difference between them and us is they didn't care. And we do. They'd been given strict instructions to wait with a promise that they would receive power. And that power would allow them to go to Samaria and beyond. At this time, whoever and whatever came wasn't going to leave them alone. But here's the key to receiving the full power of the Holy Spirit. Do not miss this. Please don't miss this. They prayed to receive without any limitation or restriction. And we don't. I'll pause there for effect. I'm speaking to myself. They prayed to receive whatever God wanted, whatever God was going to bring. We're here. We're ready. Bring it on. And we don't. They prayed to receive this helper. They didn't have any limitations. They didn't have any preconceived expectations. Jesus said they'd receive a helper. That's all they needed to know. So they prayed to make sure they received everything that God wanted to give them. I don't know what's coming. I don't know what I'll have to do. I don't know how I'll be changed. I don't know if I'll be embarrassed or not. I don't know what's going to be required of me. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But from the depths of my soul, if God is sending it, I want it, all of it. 
Is that you? Do you want God's help so much that you pray without restrictions? When you pray to the Holy Spirit, do you want all that he offers or just the comfortable stuff? Honestly, some pray with comfort limitation. I think a lot of times we pray, God, please pour out your spirit on me, but make sure I stay in control, okay? Make sure I don't do anything embarrassing. God, I want your spirit, but I don't want to become one of them. You know, the charismatic people. Don't make me one of those people. Don't embarrass me, God. You see, I have street cred down here. I want to look good at church. If you have to give me a gift, God, would you just give me one that's not public? Others pray in arrogance. God, the only gift I want is tongues, prophecy, or healing. Give me a good one, God. I want to show you off to my friends. I want to look super spiritual. A public gift would reassure me and everybody else that I'm really saved. God, bring me something I can show off in your name and point people to me. Some pray with geographic limitations. God, I want that you all that you have, but don't send me anywhere. Give me God, but keep me right here where I'm comfortable. I think many of us, including me, have not seen the full manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We haven't received all the power that God intended for us to have. And we have not seen the miraculous of the spiritual life we are supposed to lead because we pray with limitations. And we pray from our heart with limitations. We never see the miraculous of God or live in the Spirit fully. And truthfully, we're not even sure we really want to. We haven't fully surrendered or embraced our desperate need for help. The disciples had no idea what they were praying for. None. They just knew they needed God's help. And they needed a lot of it. They needed God's power. They needed his presence. They needed his comfort. They were desperate for God. In whatever way he wants to show up, just show up. Jesus paid it all, and they wanted to make sure they received it all. Are you so desperate for more of God that you'll take him in whatever form or manifestation that he chooses? You see, we have to decide as believers, do we really, really want everything the Holy Spirit wants to give us? And if we really want everything that the Spirit wants to give us, do we trust him enough? Or are we so desperate enough to want every bit of it to be poured out on us? To get on our knees and say, God, I may have resisted this in the past, but I'm all in. Anything, anywhere, anytime, any cost, just make sure you're here and you're leading and you're in control. Less of me, God, more of you. We're gonna spend a few minutes reflecting I'm going to ask you to listen to the words that Natalie's going to sing for us. I want you to think about restrictions you may have put on the Holy Spirit. During Natalie's song and for a time after the altar's open, I can't do this for you. I, I, can't, I can beg you. I can encourage you. I can make you feel comfortable maybe. But the truth is, surrendering to God is not an easy thing to do, and it's not comfortable. When we empty ourselves, there's no room left for anything else.
When we finally get to a point where we go, less of me, God, more of you, I'm desperate for your help. Send me the Holy Spirit. It's, it's everything I need. Help me to embrace the unexpected. Help me to embrace you. Help me to die to myself and kill this beast that's killing me. The only way there's room for the Spirit in us is for us to kill the flesh that's in us and make room. As we empty ourselves of us, we create room for the Holy Spirit to move. We have to repent of the sin of limiting God, of praying for more of the Spirit but not really wanting more of the Spirit. Or we'll never live the spiritual life that we were designed to live. This is our moment. This is one of those moments in your life, like those in the upper room. God wants to move in our midst. He wants every one of us to move closer to him, to be more surrendered to the Spirit so that he can do through us what we were designed to do. I said at the beginning, it's all about surrender. It's time to surrender, let's pray. God had spoke a few weeks ago about how desperate we are to be in control and how fearful we are of losing control. But losing control is only fearful if we don't know who we're losing control to. God, you are good. And we're living a shadow of the life you planned for us. And it's not your fault, it's ours. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you to this room. We pray you begin to penetrate every heart. No matter where we are, no matter what we think we've accomplished, no matter how much of a failure we feel like, there's not a moment in our lives when we can't, from the depths of our heart, say, God, take everything. I surrender all. Holy Spirit, come. We ask it in Jesus' name.